0: This evening's Bible reading is taken from Mark's Gospel, beginning at verse 27, chapter 11, and we shall be reading through from verse 27 into chapter 12, all the way through to verse 17. So, Mark 11:27 on page 1060. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall round it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that, that one, they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So he took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard.
1: We're continuing at this 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others, because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay, or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's they replied then Jesus said to them give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's and they were amazed at him this is the word of the Lord
2: Evening, everyone please do um, keep your Bibles open there at Mark chapter 12 uh, chapter 11 and 12 and um, I'm going to pray for us as we come to look at God's word together Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So Lord Jesus, we come to you, weary and burdened in all sorts of ways, and we ask that as we meet you in your words, we would find rest. Please help us to know what it will mean for us to take your yoke upon us. And please help us to learn from you. So we ask for your Holy Spirit's work among us um, as we do that, looking at your word now. Amen. Well, we're continuing um, going through Mark's gospel as we have been over the last little while. And last week we heard Jesus ask a question to Bartimaeus. It's the same question he'd asked to his disciples the week before. The question was, what do you want me to do for you? And this week we hear Jesus being asked a question. Um, It's in verse 28. He is asked, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you the right to do this? In other words, Jesus, what gives you the right to act the way that you are? Who, Who do you think you are? Here in Mark, who is asking that question? In verse 27, it's the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, that is all of the kind of representatives of the religious elite in Jerusalem at the time. And they want to know, what gives you the authority to do this stuff that you are doing? And if you think back to some of what we saw last week, if you were here, you sort of see why they might be asking that question. And um, Back in the earlier part of chapter 11, it would be fair to say, wouldn't it, that Jesus has been acting as though he is kind of a big deal. Um, he came riding into Jerusalem like a king, um, back in verse 8 and and 9. There's the people um, adoring him as he comes into his capital. And then the following day, he came into the temple like a judge. Verse 16, sorry, 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables, the money changers, and so on and so on. Um, This was his way of saying, this Whole thing, temple, the whole system is on its way out because I say so. Those were astonishingly offensive things for Jesus to do. Um, In the case of the temple, it would be difficult to overstate just how important the temple was to the people of Israel. It's the heart of national life. It's the place that everybody looks to. So kind of the Houses of Parliament, but it's way more than the Houses of Parliament to them. Because it means, it means access to God. It, it gives the identity, the core of the identity of every person who lives in the nation. And here comes Jesus, this preacher from Nazareth, saying, Ah, oh, it's on the way out. It's had its day. I say so. What in the world gives him the right to say something like that? So that's why the first century Jerusalem religious elite were asking the question, But people today are asking the question too, aren't they? Aren't we? Jesus makes claims to authority, absolute authority still today. He comes to us and doesn't say, find your own path, just work out what works for you in life. He doesn't say that. He says things like, repent and believe. He says things like, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. It's a claim to authority. And we in our culture are nervous about claims to authority. We've seen claims to authority in history and around the world today. And we've seen what happens. You know the phrase, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts, absolutely. I learned this week that a a bloke called Lord Acton was the one who said that in the first place. And he said it in 1887, looking back in history. That is a long way before all of the tyrannies all of the genocides all of the evils of the 20th and 21st century and all of them and presumably all the all the evil that Lord Acton was looking back on all of them have to do with people thinking they have the right to tell other people how to live and to judge them for it even those of us who are Christians even those of us who are sort of in principle on board with the idea of Jesus having authority I think think, find these sorts of claims hard about Jesus' authority, don't we? Because he says that his authority extends to every single area of our lives, the whole thing. There is nothing in your life, nothing in my life, with which Jesus doesn't claim the right to interfere. Um, Abraham Kuyper was a a Dutch uh, politician and theologian, and he wrote, you may have heard this quote before, he wrote, there is not one square inch Of the whole domain of our human existence, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. And when he said that, he meant that, I think, as an encouragement and a really great reason for Christians to to get involved in every area of life and not just to sort of retreat into Christian things like praying and reading the Bible and stuff. That's what he meant when he said it. But it's also a slightly unsettling thought, isn't it? There is nothing. Of which Jesus doesn't say, mine. Because there are areas of your life, there are certainly areas of mine, where I would prefer to retain control, at least to an extent, rather than handing it all over to Jesus. Relationships, career, sports, whatever it might be for you. What gives Him the right to look at that thing and say, that's mine? I've got authority over that. And maybe most arrestingly, perhaps most offensively of all, Jesus claims the right to judge us. He says one day he will judge all people. And he'll hold us to account for how we've lived our lives. What gives him the right to do that? Every person in the world, what gives him the right? If you read through Mark's gospel, any of the other gospels, you'll find that Jesus is amazingly kind. He says things like those verses I just read when I prayed. Come to me. I'm, I'm gentle and lowly and humble in heart. He's amazingly kind and humble and, and gentle and wonderful, and yet he makes claims over our lives, over everybody's life, over the whole of the world. And those claims are so enormous and so far-reaching that unless they are backed up by some serious authority, then they are very offensive indeed. By what authority are you doing these things, they ask. And the thing is, the people asking, they're verse 27 to 33, they don't really care about the answer, actually. Um, Jesus highlights the hypocrisy of their position. So he says there in verse 29, all right, I will tell you, if you'll answer me this question, verse 30, John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. Sounds like it's slightly... Strange question, didn't sort of see that one coming particularly. But actually, he's, he's kind of backed them into a corner a little bit. Because everybody sort of in the crowd that's there at the time, everybody there believed that John the Baptist, who's the John he's talking about, was a guy acting with God's authority. That was, a, that was uncontroversial. John acts with God's authority. But earlier on in the gospel, John had endorsed Jesus. In fact, he'd said, You yeah, know, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie Jesus' sandals. That's how much greater than me he is. So if John has got God's authority and he says Jesus is the real deal, then obviously Jesus has got God's authority, and that becomes an uncontroversial thing to claim. And the religious leaders, the chief priests and all the rest of them, they understand exactly what Jesus is saying, um, but they refuse to face up to it. And so, verse 33, they just sort of shut down the conversation. We don't know. Never mind, forget what we asked. So Jesus answers their question in that case, not with a sort of direct statement, um, but with a parable. And um, that's where we're going to spend most of our time, this parable in chapter 12. And there's so much we could say about it. It is so rich and full of significance. But it answers this question that we've been talking about. By what authority are you doing these things? Earlier on this week, Monday actually, I was um, having a conversation with a couple of people who were studying English at the university here, and sort of talking about how they got into English, what had made them decide to do that. And in both cases, it was because they had studied Shakespeare for GCSE, and they'd loved it so much, and had got their sort of English juices flowing, that they thought, I just want more English. And um, I look up to those perhaps doing GCSE's A-levels, and I wonder if... You feel like that. I know a lot of people who read Shakespeare at GCSE who are not studying English, and that's the reason. Um, I'm not studying. Well, what did I think of Shakespeare? I don't know. I'm mainly studying English because I wouldn't be. Not studying English because I wouldn't be very good at it. But one thing I did study of Shakespeare at GCSE was Hamlet. And this parable is a little bit like something that happens in Hamlet. I don't know if you've ever seen it or read it. It will actually help. Uh, what I'm about to say, if you haven't read it, because I'll probably butcher the storyline of it. But one thing that happens in Hamlet is that Hamlet, who's the main character, he stages a play. So it's the, it's a play within the play, and he's trying to work out whether whether the king murdered his father. And so he writes this play, and it's a play that features murder, and so he's sort of sitting there, and he's got an eye on the king watching it, just sort of looking to see how he responds to it, trying to see, is this the response of a murderer. Is that about right? I think that's pretty much what happens in Hamlet. In any case, um, the thing that he says uh, as he's sort of cooking up this plan is, the play is the thing wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. And this parable is a lot like that. It's a story within the whole story of Mark um, that reveals what is going on um, around Jesus. It reveals what's happening in the real world. And it's designed to catch the consciences of Jesus' hearers. It's designed to show them what they are doing. So, verse 1. Jesus introduces us to a man who built, uh, planted rather, a vineyard. And you can see from verse 1 the care that he takes over it and how deliberate he is. And and presumably he just starts with a field and he builds and he digs and uh, all the rest of whatever's involved in, in, in planting a vineyard he carries the project through from start all the way to completion, and he creates this absolutely top-notch vineyard. As vineyards go, verse one is presumably describing a very, very good one. Build it, rents it out to some tenant farmers. That's a normal thing to do at the time. Build your vineyard, say to various farmers, you, know, you can live here, you can work on this vineyard, and you can make your living from it, and you just pay a small cut of that to the landlord. That's pretty standard practice. And this, farm is a really, this man is a really, really good landlord. Look at the, the, the vineyard that he's built for them. He's not the kind of landlord where you rent a flat off them and you know you move in and there's kind of mold on the walls and everything is just on the verge of breaking so that when you break it, it looks like it's your fault and they won't take any responsibility. He's the opposite of that. He is, imagine moving into a flat fully furnished with absolutely... You know, really nice stuff in great condition. There's a fancy coffee machine in the kitchen for you just to use because you might like that. Um, the fridge is full of your favorite tipple just to make you feel welcome. Um, th- these tenants can't believe their luck. He is an epic landlord. And so they get settled in and they like the vineyards. And in verse two, it gets around to harvest time. And in an agrarian society, that's also rent collection time. And uh, so... Um, a servant comes from the landlord there in verse two, and the conversation I guess goes something like, "Morning, morning, farmers, um, good to see you. Hope you're settling in and enjoying the place. Um, so it's just just what we agreed. Um, if that's all right, it's, it's payment time now." But the tenant farmer's response to that is to think, "No, this this is our vineyard." I've, I've not seen the landlord doing any farming. What right does he have it? We we live here. We're going to keep the stuff. Thank you very much. This is ours. And um, obviously that doesn't go down very well with the servant, you would have thought. And so he says, well, no, th- This is this is his vineyard. This is what we agreed. This is what you owe him. And there's a shouting match ensues, lots of kind of finger pointing, some punches thrown. And in the end, this servant is sort of thrown off the property. It's Terrible behavior from the tenant farmers. You, you, you can't do this. This is reason enough for eviction, prosecution. The landlord could do whatever he liked with them. But what does he do? Verse 4, he sends another one. And this time, the tenants are ready. Haven't we told you? We're, we're not paying. It's not happening. And they've sort of prepared a few of the biggest brawniest tenant farmers uh, to to welcome this guy and they are onto him quite quickly this time it's not just a couple of punches but they they give him a pretty thorough going over and they kick him out and they say don't come back don't send anybody else we are not paying but verse five he does send another and this time the the tenants are, are starting to get angry they think i Can't believe this. We couldn't have made this any clearer. This is our vineyard. We're not paying. And so servant comes through the gate. And as soon as he's he's in, the temperatures are high. And so blows start raining down. And there's insults. And there's punching. And there's kicking. And there's a load of them getting involved. And on it goes. And then somebody shouts, stop, stop. He's dead. And they realize that they've killed him. And you've got to think, well, surely a line has been crossed now. We've had assault. We've had GBH. Now we've got murder, all in the name of not paying their rent. Surely the landlord is going to come and sort it out. These guys are not getting any nicer. They're not coming round to his way of thinking. They're just hardening. And yet, verse 5, he sent many others. Some of them they beat. Others they killed get rid of them, kick them out. But the next day, the tenant farmers see someone coming down the road towards the vineyard and they're expecting people to come and so they're looking in the distance and they're thinking, oh, who's it this time? Is it the police? Is he sending in the heavies? What is it? But no, it's just one guy and he carries himself differently to the servants. He has this sort of air of nobility about him. It's the owner's son. The owner loves his son. The son stands to inherit the whole vineyard. He carries all of the authority of the landlord. But verse 7, the tenants see this not as the moment to wind their necks in, not as their last opportunity to say, all right, all right. Instead, they see an opportunity. If the heir dies, who gets the vineyard? Tenants. And so the son kind of knocks on the door And they welcome him in. And this time, there's no anger, there's no loss of control, nothing gets out of hand. They've just planned it, and they do it, and they throw the body over the wall. It's clear-headed, cold-blooded. So Jesus asks in verse 9, What will the owner of the vineyard do? And this is the Hamlet moment. This is the moment where Jesus is saying, can you see religious authorities, what you're involved in here? But by the way you're living, you're resisting God. And even though he sent his son to you, you're planning to kill him. Actually, they've been plotting since chapter 3 of Mark's gospel to kill Jesus. Jesus is saying, if you you go there, if you go through with that, what do you think God's response is going to be? And the landlord in this story, he's been so kind He's been so patient and reasonable. They've not only not thanked him for setting up a, a brilliant vineyard for them to live in. They've not given him his basic rights. They've abused and killed his staff. And they've taken from him not only his inheritance, his legacy, but his, his family, his son. So verse 9, here is what Jesus' answer to his own question. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And as for the son that they tried to get rid of, he is going to be vindicated. That's what verse 10 is about. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in in our eyes. So somehow, the one that they have killed and thrown out is going to be brought back in and put right at the center, and something new, is going to be built on him. So that's what Jesus says is going to happen. But the response in verse 12 from the religious authorities is exactly the way that you would expect the tenants to respond. They looked for a way to arrest him because they knew, they knew he had spoken the parable against him. Against them, sorry. So there's the parable. What does it mean? Well, on one level, this is really the, the whole story of Jesus' life on earth, isn't it? Um, sent from his father in heaven. And the, the tenets, the, the religious leaders of God's people, they hate him. Note from this story, it's not that they don't understand who he is. It's not just that they've not put the pieces together. Verse 7, this is the heir. They know exactly who he is. Sent, they, they know that he's sent from God to call them to order. And for that very reason... They kill them. They're very religious people who Jesus is talking to. But actually, they hate God. It's not that they are earnestly seeking God through their religion. That's not what it's for. It's a way of sort of keeping God off their backs. It's a great big show so that they, they look like they're doing the right things as far as God's concerned so that they can keep him out of the picture. And a couple of days after this, they did manage to kill the son. And a couple of days after that, God vindicated him. He raised him from the dead. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The one who the leaders of Israel get rid of him, kill him. God has restored and put him right at the center of all of his plans for the world. So it's the story of Jesus' life, but actually it it ripples out slightly further than that. It tells the story of, of the whole of the history of the nation of Israel up until this point. When Jesus starts talking about man planting a vineyard and all of that stuff, his listeners would know straight away what he was talking about because he's deliberately picking up a passage from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5, that everybody would have known where God describes Israel as a vineyard, um, a vineyard that he planted and expected to get some fruit from, but he didn't get it. he'd, He'd given his people all manner of privileges, he'd given them the promised land. He'd given them the law to, to kind of show them how to, how to live together and how to relate to him. And he said to them, I expect you to bear fruit. I expect you to respond to my kindness by loving me and by blessing the people around you. But it didn't, it didn't happen. Um, his people rebelled against him. So what did he do? Well, he sent them uh, prophets, often called servants in the Old Testament, And they came along again and again and again to say, no, 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 you're God's people. You're God's vineyard. You can't can't be ignoring him like this. You can't be treating him like this. You need to acknowledge him and love him. And again and again, the prophets were ignored or persecuted. The Old Testament is full of books of prophets. Should only really have needed one, shouldn't it? But again and again, they came and were ignored. So then God sent them his son. Surely they'll respect the son, he thought. It's not an israel specific problem i take it if god had chosen the nation of england as his chosen people exactly the same thing would have happened it just would have been colder what does god do well he vindicates his son he raises him from the dead and he gives the vineyard to others did you see that there at the end of verse nine he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others that is the privilege of being god's people no longer comes to just one nation, just the physical descendants of one family, but to anyone from any nation who puts their trust in the cornerstone in Jesus. Anyone who builds their life on the cornerstone, they are the others of verse 9, the people to whom God has given the vineyard, the status of being his people. So the parable, it tells the story of Jesus' life, it tells the whole of the history of the people of Israel, but it actually tells the story of the whole of this world. This is, uh, you know, verse 1 to 11 here is the history of the world in about 11 sentences according to Jesus Christ. It's worth listening to, isn't it? Because God has created not just a nice vineyard. He's not sort of made life nice just for one nation in the Old Testament. The Bible tells us that God has created a good world, very good world, in fact. Um, He's filled it with goodness and beauty, and potential, and he's handed over the care of it, the responsibility to look after it, to people, to human beings, Adam and Eve in the first instance, and then all of their descendants. And he says to us, I want you to rule over the world on my behalf, but but do it in relationship with me. Do it as worship to me. Do it out of love for me. Give me what I'm due. And we don't do that. Um, we like the stuff God gives, but we, we want God out of the picture. We like the vineyard. We don't like the landlord. And the warnings come to the world. You need to turn back to God. You need to repent. You need to acknowledge him, worship him. But we, as a human race, by and large, say, oh, God, put a sock in it. You know, we're, we're happy having a good time, enjoying the good stuff. Why do you have to keep bringing God into the picture? So last of all, God sends his son into his world And his world rejects him too. So God says, well, in that case, I will will judge this world. And I will build a new one on my risen son as the cornerstone. And that is what God is doing now. Jesus, when he came, he came to bring in a new world. And he's building it even still today. And it's going to outlast this old world. And the new one is made up of people who will receive and acknowledge Jesus as the Son, as the cornerstone. He invites people, he invites people from all over this old world to Him, to receive Him, to be forgiven, to be made part of the new world. So we come back, just as we come towards the finish, to that question that Jesus was asked in the first place, the thing that this whole parable was, was an answer to. By what authority? you doing these things? What gives you the right? And hopefully the answer has started to become clear, but let me just, just as we finish, really quickly just crystallize three things that I think we've already seen that answer that question. What gives Jesus the right? What gives Jesus the authority over the world and over you and over me? Number one, because we live in his world. We live in his world. I reckon of all of the cities in the world, Oxford probably has the highest keep-off-the-grass-to-metre-square ratio of any. Um, you go into Christchurch over the road, and they are absolutely everywhere. And you ask the question, well, it's just grass. Like, what's wrong with me walking on it? And the answer is, they've got the right to tell you to stay off it because it's their turf, literally. It's, it's theirs. And so it is with this world. See, if, if our world doesn't ultimately belong to anyone then there is no objective standard to which we're held. Nobody, nobody and nothing has got the authority to tell us what to do. Which might sound freeing and fun, but it's actually a terrible idea. Because it means that then all the tenants get away with it. Um, all of the oppression and injustice and cruelty in our world is really not a particularly bad thing. And all of the kindness and the self-sacrifice and the patience, they're not particularly good things. They're, just, they're all just things. None of them mean anything particularly. They're all just stuff that happens. Unless we are on someone's property. And Jesus says we are. We're on his father's property. Everything we have, we have because his father has given it to us. And therefore his son gets to call the shots for how life goes in this world. He's not harsh about that. Um, He's he's given us a brilliant world. Um, And he gives gives it to us to enjoy. He's kind kind to us. He's patient with us. He actually wants to help us and to give us life. But in the end, he does have authority. He has authority over the temple in Jerusalem. It's his temple. He has authority over the people of Israel. Israel's his. He has authority over how I treat other people. Other people are his. Over what I do with my body, it's his. Over that area of my life that I was thinking about before that I want to keep away from him. It's his. We live in his world. Second thing we've seen, he's got authority to call the shots because we owe him rent. He did expect something from the tenants, didn't he? And actually, Mark highlights in the next little story that we had read that there are things that we ought to give to God. You might remember this uh, passage from verse 13. It's quite a well-known one, really. He's asked the question, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And it's another of these gotcha questions that we've kept on seeing. Because if Jesus says yes, then he's colluding with the Romans, and that means that the people of Israel will hate him. And if he says no, then he's subverting Roman power, and the Romans will kill him. So whoever it is asking, the Pharisees, Herodians think, ha-ha, what a clever question, we've got him here. But Jesus takes the opportunity to say, well, yes, there are some things that you ought to give to Caesar, um, the things that belong to him, the things that bear his image. But there are also things that you ought to give to God, things that he is owed, presumably the things that bear his image, that is ourselves, people, so it's not quite rent in the, in the sense that we understand it. Rent is a kind of necessary evil, isn't it? It's a cost that I have to pay so that I can enjoy some nice things. When we give ourselves to God, of course it does involve a cost. I have to hand over control of my life, but it's not a necessary evil. It's actually freeing. It's actually part of the nice things to be able to live for God. Nevertheless, it is what God is due the whole of our lives St. Augustine very famously said, O oh God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That is, we do exist for God. He has made us for himself. He has the rights to us, and it's right and fitting and proper that we should live our lives for him. But as we do that, we find at the same time that it's, it's actually the way to find rest. It's the way that our restless Souls and hearts find rest. It's both of those things. We are not saying that, um, okay, well, this means you have to give God a bit of your money, and you have to come to church a bit, and you have to do some religious stuff, then you will have paid your rent. Jobs are good. Em. We are saying that we, we owe to God our whole selves, the whole thing. Actually, later on in this chapter, which we'll look at in a week or two, verse 30, Jesus is going to say, This rent, what we ought to give to God, it looks like loving him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and loving our neighbors as ourselves. That's our responsibility as human beings, Jesus is saying. That is what God ought to be given by us. And Jesus has got authority to say what that looks like. Third reason that we've seen why Jesus has authority to call all the shots because God is building a new world on him. We've seen the plan. We've seen that the temple and the whole era that it represented are on the way out because Jesus says so. We've seen that God is building a new world. And that new world began when Jesus was raised from the dead, the first new thing from death. He was the first one. And that was when God was taking the rejected stone and putting it as the cornerstone putting Jesus right at the center of all of his plans for the world. And God said, I am building a new thing on him, on Jesus. That was what the resurrection was about. And we've seen that anybody who trusts in Jesus and starts to build their life on him is a part of that. Is a part of that new world. And the defining characteristic of the new world that God is building is not that the people in it all come from a particular nation or anything like that, but it is that they give to God what is God's. It is that they honor his son with their whole lives. So in the end, the great reason, the great reason why we say to Jesus, you can call the shots in my life, is that we recognize he is the cornerstone. He is what life is all about. He is at the center of God's plans for the world and for our lives. We can trust him. We can trust him. He loved us enough to die on the cross for us. The trust question is settled. And it is our duty and our joy to entrust the whole of our lives to Him. So, then, the question for this week, as we sort of come off the back of this parable into Monday, is will you see it that way? Will you see Jesus as the cornerstone? Will you see Him at the heart of all of God's plans? Will you see Him as the point of everything? Will you build your life on Jesus, the cornerstone? Will you recognize his authority over your life, over all of your life, over the lives of everyone? Will you give to God what is God's this week and live your life as though it's his gift to be enjoyed in relationship with him? Will you do what the tenants failed to do? Receive and honor and welcome the son. And if you will do that, then you will be seeing your life Lining up with what is happening in the whole universe, that is verse 10 and 11. That's what's happening in the whole universe, happening as our life as we put Jesus at the center. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone of a new world and of a new life that each of us is invited into. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Well, let me pray and thank him for this marvelous thing that he's done. Father, we recognize ourselves in these tenants here that we've taken your stuff and tried to shut you out. And we're really sorry for that. And we recognize too who Jesus is, your son. And we recognize where you've put him at the center of everything and given him all authority over everything, even over us. And so we pray that you'll help us then this week as we try and live out and line ourselves up with the fact that Jesus is the cornerstone. Help us as we put him at the center of our lives, and we pray that he'd be greatly honored by that. In his name, amen.